There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. That's my radio voice, Greg. Excellent. Getting pretty good at that one, actually. Sound a bit like Johnny Fever. Dr. Johnny Fever. Yes. Last week, we had the pleasure of interviewing Stacy Francis, an American investment advisor working in New York City. What's another term for New York City? The Big Apple, I guess. The Big Apple, right? yeah. And there's a link between what we talked to Stacy about and what we want to explore today. It's an American link because... Recently, we've had the U.S. midterm elections held. Yes. And the results are kind of in. It wasn't the red wave that some were predicting. Exactly. But interesting times anyways. And it leads a lot of people to question things like, how do the elections come out to play in the markets? And the U.S. system is very different than our good old Canadian parliamentary system. In the U.S., there's three houses. There's the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. Whereas in Canada, we have a different system. But as it sits right now, prior to the midterm election, the Democrats held all three houses. And after this midterm election, well, there's a split. Each party sort of runs one or two houses. And some would say that's not such a bad thing from a balance of power perspective. Exactly. So we wanted to look at today, what does it mean for markets? So Because we're not politicians. Definitely not. We're not running for anything. We're not vote deniers or vote participators. In U.S. elections. Exactly. Why don't we look at that today? What's the impact of midterm elections and U.S. presidential elections in general on the markets and returns? And this one, obviously, is quite timely because it's an interesting time in the markets. So September was really, really bad. Well, let's not talk about September. And we've talked about this previously. The U.S. and P500 is down more than 20% from its high. And then here we are, midterm elections. And as we've talked many times People look for patterns in stock returns. It's what many, many thousands and thousands of people do, is they try to make predictions about what's going to happen with stocks based on patterns. And so these midterm elections occur every four years, and so there's a potential for a pattern to emerge around these things. We'll talk about the presidential elections as well, but right now, let's focus on midterms for a minute or two. So basically, here's an interesting fact. The stock market has risen after every midterm election since 1950. That is an interesting fact. So over the last 72 years then, and measuring from the date of the midterm election to a year following, every single time the market has been up. And the average since 1950, thank you to Forbes magazine for providing this data. So there's 18 midterm election cycles since 1950. And in the 12 months following, the average return has been about 18.6%. That's a pretty good number because the long-term average return on the S&P 500 over the same time period would be about 9% per year. Well, in fact, if you look at all other years since 1950, so your numbers are just about bang on, since 1950, all other years other than midterm election years, 10.6%. 
So 18.6% in midterm election years or following midterm election years, 10.6% in all other years. I think even more so now because there's been so much volatility in the stock markets, as you're aware, as everybody's aware, that we're coming out of a, well, hopefully we're coming out of a bear market. And there's a lot of data that shows not just about the U.S. presidential midterm elections or any of that stuff, but just market returns in general coming out of a bear market tend to be higher than normal. Exactly. And so now we've got a double whammy because we've got hopefully coming out of a bear market, which should be higher than normal. And we're post U.S. midterm election, which historically has been higher than normal. That's right. And listen, as you say, because we also talked about data that was provided to us from DFA a while back, anytime the market has been down 20% in one year, subsequent returns, as you say, have been extremely strong. One of the things when you're looking at patterns like this midterm election cycle pattern is you want to be able to look at it and, and see if there's a good reason why that might happen. Like, is this just a random event that's just an unlikely event that just happens to have happened this many times, 18 times in a row? Or is there some reason why markets may perform better in midterm election years or after midterm election years? Well, what's the yeah. answer? Well, there's no, there's no exact answer, but there's a lot of theories. And one of the theories that seems to have a lot of believers is that typically midterm elections go against the party that controls the White House. It's very often seen as a referendum on the performance of the president, who in this case, of course, was elected two years ago. And it often results in a divided Congress where one party controls the White House and the House of Representatives and the other party controls the Senate or vice versa, any possible combination. But gridlock is seen as possibly potentially good to the markets because gridlock means that there will be a low likelihood of significant economic changes coming from the party in power. So there may not be dramatic changes to taxation or handouts or, or government or spending, government spending yeah. without limits, that kind of thing. And so as a result of that, the theory is that, well, okay, that can be beneficial to markets because it gives a little bit more stability, a little bit more likelihood that expectations will be realized based on gridlock or just the chances of no major economic or macroeconomic things happening from the governing level. So anyway, that's the theory. On the one hand, when we look at these kinds of results, I think, well, that would be nice. I think we can all agree, gee, that would be nice if this midterm election year is no different than previous. And if we can look forward to 18.5% average return next year. And actually, if you look two years post midterm elections, the return has been 33%. So even better if you look out two years. And the question we have to ask yourself, though, is A, is this an investable pattern that we're seeing here? And B, why might this year be different than other years? And one reason why this year might be different than other years is, well, there's not too many midterm election years recently where we've come in with U.S. inflation at about 8%, where it is right now. And if you look back previous years, certainly anything during the 2000s and maybe the 1990s, inflation going into midterm election years was maybe in the 2 to 3% range. That can have a big impact on what happens going forward. And again, we're not saying that it will. We're just saying that not every year, not every midterm election year is the same. And to blindly expect that, oh, we're going to get 20% or 18% next year and 33% over two years is probably a little unrealistic. However, 
what we would say about this data is that, yeah, I mean, it's probably one more good reason why not to sell out of your portfolios, whether it's your portfolios, stocks or bonds, based on other factors, fear, negative predictions about the possibility of a recession, that kind of thing. What it says is, okay, well, right now, if you believe the pattern, then that would be positive. But hey, we always think that stocks are a good thing to invest in for the long run. That's because the expected return going forward is higher. And I would argue, you're talking about this is another reason not to sell out. I would go a little further and say, this is actually a reason to buy. I'd get a bit more bullish on that personally, because if 100% of midterm elections over the last 72 years have had positive returns after the midterm election, and 100% of bear markets coming out of a bear market has led to a bull market, then I would suspect your expected return from here going forward, arguably, is kind of high. Exactly. But I think where some people get it wrong is they're looking at these elections, like I hear this quite often, Biden's got to do something about inflation. That doesn't even make any sense because the president has nothing to do with inflation. It's the central banks that monitor inflation. We talked about this in previous episodes. So the question then going forward is, as there's a U.S. presidential election in less than two years now, what does it mean for markets? What do investors do? How do they question their portfolios? And we can only look back at what's occurred to sort of try to look forward to what potentially could occur. So you mentioned the article you were describing came from Forbes. I have another one. It's from Forbes as well, but it's a little dated. It's July of 2020. It would have been just before the last presidential election. And it looked at during different presidential periods, what did the market do with each president in power, whether it was a Democrat or a Republican? And what it showed is that the market is pretty agnostic in regards to whether or not it's a Democrat or a Republican. The market doesn't really care. There's a lot of people in the U.S. that might care, but the market itself, it just really doesn't care. So, Greg, the best performing return in the S&P 500 who was the president in power at the time? And you got the list in front of me. I have the list in front of me. <laughs> so I'm going to say William J. Clinton. Otherwise known as Bill. Yes. Yeah. So Bill Clinton, when he was in power from whatever years he was in, the S&P had a 210% return. The worst returning president, I shouldn't say that, the period of time of the worst return <laughs> with a president in power, who was it? That's going to be George W. Bush. George W. Now, the market, that being the S&P 500, we're calling the market. It's not really the market, but it's a form of the market. That's right. right? It returned negative 40%. That's a 250% swing between President Clinton and George W. Bush. So this, I don't know, (laughs) this just has to be a function of timing. Well, absolutely. And if you look at what was happening, Clinton essentially was in power during the run-up to the dot-com crash. And so the years leading up to 2000 was the election, 2001, Bush came into power. But that was a huge run-up culminating in the market, peaking in about March of that year. And so he was absolutely the beneficiary of that heady times in the market. And even though it was primarily tech stocks that drove things up. A lot of other S&P 500 stocks got pulled up with those tech stocks, resulting in those excellent returns. You have that saying, a rising tide lifts all boats. 
It was led by tech, just like 2020 returns were led by tech, but it pulled the general market up. And then you look at, well, what happened in the eight years that George W. was the president? I'll tell you what happened. We had the tech wreck, the end of the tech market bubble, and then we had 9-11. Exactly. That's how we started his presidency is with those two major events occurring. It's pretty easy to see why there was such a difference in market returns well, and that's right. And when you think about it, you almost feel bad for the poor guy because he had those two events, the dot-com crash, and then, of course, the global financial crisis to finish out his term. Yeah. Each of those brought stocks down 50% from their highs. So when you have two negative 50s during your time in power, there's not a lot of escape from that. Especially because, as you know, it's a function of math. If the market goes down 50%, it has to go back up 100% just to get back to where it was. Exactly. Right. So he didn't have a hope. Does it mean he was a great president, a bad president? I'll leave that for others to decide. But sure. just in general, in regards to the market itself, because after him came Barack Obama. Well, while Barack Obama was in power, the S&P returned 182%. Again, was that a function of anything that Barack Obama did? No, I mean, it's just, again, a function of timing. He got into power at the end of the financial crisis. That's right. Where the market returned, well, had one of its biggest bull market recovery periods in history. And then, of course, after Barack Obama, well, I don't want to say his name out loud because I really don't care to say it, but the man who shall be left unnamed yes. got into power and the market was kind of flat. And actually, I would argue, again, it had nothing to do with that particular person being in power. It's just that was the market return at the time. Exactly. Anyway, so I think we've beaten that dead horse. So why? Why do markets behave a certain way? We know that it seems to be relatively random when you look at the actual market returns. There is a theory around how markets behave in presidential cycles, which surprisingly is called the presidential election cycle theory. That's very, very creative. That's right. Yes. Okay. So that was developed by the founder of Stock Traders Almanac, Yale Hirsch, and it contends that the U.S. stock markets are weakest in the year following the election of a new president. Now, let's look at Joe Biden's first year as president. I think the market was up fairly significantly in 2021. So that doesn't hold in that particular case. But according to the theory, after the first year, the market improves until the cycle begins again with the next presidential election. So again, here's the theory. The theory suggests the markets perform best in the second half of a presidential term when the sitting president tries to boost the economy to get reelected. It's predicated on the view that a shift in presidential priorities is a primary influence on the stock market. And when you look at data from the past several decades, there does seem to be some support of a stock surge during the second half of an election cycle. Interestingly, here we are, and that does fall into the what we talked about with midterm elections, which of course come halfway through. So again, patterns, but not necessarily causation. I'm going to take the other side of that argument and say that uh, that's bunk <laughs> in that it cycles. If the average bull market is on average, I think it's five years. And the average bear market is, on average, roughly 14 months. If those just happen to align with presidential periods, then it might support the presidential election cycle theory. If they happen to not align with them, then somebody would say, yeah, but I mean, 80% of the time, and 
works that way. And your thinking, your bunk theory, falls right in line with an article put out by Fidelity back in January of 2020, basically stating it always comes back to fundamentals. Okay, so it could be that if you just wait long enough, the long-term fundamentals of earning and interest rates, labor growth, productivity, and the mean reverting nature of an independent monetary policy will take over in driving long-term returns. And that's ultimately might be what's going on. So the economy and therefore the market is just bigger than the direction the political winds are blowing at any particular time. Well, even think about that today. This last year, I was listening to, I don't know, CNN or something one day, and somebody was on there talking about how President Biden did this great thing by releasing a bunch of oil from the strategic oil reserve into the market, which affected the price at the pumps. That can't be true, Greg. It may be in the short term, like maybe in a very short term, but the amount of oil that's left in the strategic oil reserve isn't enough to make a long-term impact on the price. No. Oil is a global commodity, and the release of oil from the strategic oil reserve is not going to have a significant impact on the global supply and demand characteristics of the global market right now. To your point of, it is simply bigger than the direction the political winds are blowing. Yeah. If you talk about oil for a second, I know oil gets a bad rap these days because it's dirty. It's bad for the environment, right. some would say. The actual result is that the demand for oil is only increasing globally. Correct. That is a much bigger thing than whoever is the president. Absolutely. Sorry, I took us off topic there. No, that's all right. So again, just coming back to that last point, it's long-term fundamentals. And while things like fiscal policy, spending, taxation can have an impact, obviously, on the whole macroeconomic environment, monetary policy, which is really what's in play right here. And as we talk about inflation, this is a monetary policy issue. Inflation, as we've talked about, is not a U.S. problem. It's a global problem. Central banks around the world are taking action to try to stem that inflation. It could be the inflation was largely a response to supply chain disruptions post-COVID. Supply demand, obviously, is the major determinant of prices. And a supply chain issue would obviously have a big impact on that whole situation. So it's something that's affecting everybody. I got a real life example of supply, demand, pricing, COVID versus today. During the peak of COVID, I, like many people, went to an exercise store and started buying exercise equipment. Okay. I bought a treadmill, Greg. Do you know how much I paid for that treadmill? I do not. I hate to say it. It was $2,900. Okay. Okay. $2,900. That's real cash. Okay. It was a commercial grade treadmill and I did a lot of research into it. I thought, that seems like one that's going to last for a long time. Okay. I happened to stop in that store the other day, two years later. That treadmill is now being sold for $1,800. I'm not the best mathematician, but that sounds better than (laughs) (laughs) $2,900. So I said to the lady at the counter, I think I paid almost $3,000 for that treadmill. And she said, no, you couldn't have. These have been for sale for $1,800 for quite a while now. And she looked back at the history and she said, holy crap, yeah, you did. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't that make you feel good? (laughs) I said, well, but here's the point is that that was the price at the time. Supply was limited. Demand had increased because of the closure of things like gyms. Oh, yeah. And so the price went up. You had to look high, wide, and handsome to get your hands on a set of weights or something like a treadmill. At the time, I felt fortunate to be able to find one. Yeah, I didn't really question the price of which. Anyways, so let's talk about the longer term market perspective, not about treadmills, because we're going to get into, well, the next presidential election, which he who shall not be named is probably going to run in again. Yep. 
But that election is going to be held in 2024. And it, again, it's going to lead to more people questioning, how should I be invested? Am I in the right things? If the Republicans get in, will, is this what I should be doing? If the Democrats stay in, is this what I should be doing? And the answer is, back to our first point, Greg, it kind of doesn't matter. It doesn't matter yeah. if it's a Republican or a Democrat as president now or in the future, according to the data. So DFA had a webinar recently where they showed an annualized market return during presidential terms, ranked from highest to lowest. Now, this is, we've kind of gone through some yeah. of this data already. Yeah. But this is annualized. What we talked about before wasn't annualized. It was just total return. Total return. The best annualized return for a president, well, for a period of time when a person was president, was Gerald Ford, a Republican. Exactly. 20. Yeah, so 2%. even though his total return, he was in power less years than Bill Clinton. And so his actual annualized return was better. Yeah, because he was only in power from 1974 to 1977. And the S&P 500 only returned 26% during that period. But because of the length of his time in office, annualized, it looks much higher. And the worst one, we won't go through the whole list, but no. it, it kind of lays out the same way. Bill Clinton, then yeah. Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, et cetera. The worst one, of course, is the same as the last list, which was George W. So where are we going with this? Just reinforcing the point that it doesn't really matter. That's right. I mean, so we started talking about the midterm elections, and there does seem to be a pattern related to performance following the midterm elections. That pattern, which is positive, is not really all that different than our expectation that over time stocks go up. And maybe there are some fundamental things that happen in the second half of a presidential term or after midterm elections but it doesn't really change our approach to how we would manage our portfolios. Because we're talking about the long term, not the short term. I should back up here a minute and say that there are times during different presidential periods where decisions made will impact the stock market immediately for yep. a short period of time. So 2018, the last quarter of the year, there was a trade war that developed between the US and China. There were tariffs being applied to all kinds of Chinese goods. And it led the stock market to sell off. Well, and at the same time, the Federal Reserve was trying to normalize interest rates and had raised interest rates several times during 2018, resulting in a poor year for bonds and an even worse year for stocks. But it was short-lived. Absolutely. Because that was like the last quarter of the year. So those were, I guess, direct market results from a direct decision, but it was very short-lived. We're not invested for three-month periods, Greg. We're no. invested for years and years. Anyways, Greg, we're going to get to the end of this pretty quick here. And I know we're kind of, this has been just more of a discussion today, but it's been kind of This fun. is a stream of consciousness. Yeah. So what can investors do during these times? If the point of the story is that it kind of doesn't matter who the president is, it kind of doesn't matter what happens in the midterms, although it might be correlated to market cycles, as you say, causation might not be there. So what can investors do during these times and any other time? Well, I think one thing is to acknowledge the fact that the world has observed lots of previous crises, but capital markets have actually always, to this point, rewarded disciplined investors. Lots of events around the world can have an influence on stock prices, as you mentioned, in the short term, but you can't predict when those things are going to happen, what impact they will have on the markets. Very often, we're surprised. We thought a global pandemic would actually have a negative impact on the market. No, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't. It, it did for such a short period of time that many people didn't even notice. The shortest recession in history. That, that's right. 
you can't ever be sure how a single event is going to impact stock prices because at any time, as we've talked about this in a previous podcast, maybe last month, there are so many factors affecting stock prices, so many factors affecting macroeconomic situation in the world and the macroeconomic conditions that trying to limit it to a single factor and determine how that's going to affect stock prices is sort of pointless. Well, didn't Bob Merton, Nobel laureate, point out that there are something like 9,000 inputs to calculate to when you start talking about factors that influence prices? Exactly. Another thing is just when you react to a crisis by leaving the market or wanting to sit it out, wait till things get better, it's just another form of market timing, which we've talked about endlessly on these podcasts. Dealing with uncertainty associated with major events is actually why investors earn a return over time. If there was no risk, there would be no return. Kind of the basis of capitalism is in order to earn a return, you have to take on some risk. And in order to attempt to achieve a higher return, you have to take on higher risk. And so, sure, I mean, a lot of these things are going to happen. They will always happen. We don't know where they're going to come from, but that's part of the risk of investing. And that's one of the reasons why we have higher expected returns. Well, that's the difference between risk and uncertainty. Risk is measurable. So we can say with some certainty that future returns will fall within two standard deviations of an average return 95% of the time. That's very different than saying, I'm not sure what's going to happen next year. Exactly. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of people want to get out of the market just to alleviate their anxiety because it's not comfortable watching your statements every month and you're going through a six to 12 month bear market or longer and watching it go down and getting more and more panicking. But sometimes reacting to the news and exiting the market may actually not alleviate that anxiety. Divorcing the market doesn't work. Exactly. <laughs> you don't get half when you divorce the market. Given all of that. Nothing? I get nothing for that? <laughs> <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Sorry. I guess what we always end up coming back to is, so how do you deal with it? Here's our usual closing, proper diversification, asset allocation that's in line with your goals, and looking at things like goals-based performance, like having a plan and linking your plan to your goals and making sure that you're on track to achieve those goals. That all helps get through the downturn and that we're going through right now. And if the history repeats itself on the market returns post-midterm elections, then we Hopefully a year from now, we'll all be sitting here having a great time. Well, if history tells us anything, it's just telling us that our expected return from here looks a lot brighter. Yeah, you bet. All right. I guess that does it for today. It does. Oh, I wanted to mention something. You know, we used to, back in good old pandemic days, we'd talk about what we've been binging on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. And I think I mentioned to you, we're watching this show. And this was a show that ran from 2014 to 2018 on some channel called TNT. I have no idea what that channel is. Anyway, it's called The Last Ship. Interesting because, of course, so this is back in 2014, and the premise of this show was there's been a worldwide pandemic that has essentially wiped out three quarters of the world's population. And this ship, this Navy ship, which had been on an expedition to find a cure, actually found a cure, and it goes through what happens. But what was interesting is just they delve into what happens when governments are sort of wiped out because most of the president and most of the subsequent leaders were killed by the pandemic. And they talk about things like how the media and disinformation 
being spread by people that want to take power or want to how that disinformation sort of finds its way through the public. And it's just kind of an interesting sort of comparison to what's going on right now with concerns over social media and whether or not social media helps to promote misinformation or disinformation. Interesting show, The Last Ship, five seasons, Amazon Prime. Have a look. I'll give that one a look because I was listening to another podcast, Smartless, and President Joe Biden was on Smartless. Oh, yes. It was a very good episode. That's a great podcast, by the way. Yeah, and he made a comment about how the problem with today is that there's no edit button. So everything becomes seen as news. To be quite frank, anybody listening to our show could view it as news. It's not really news. No, it's opinions. these, These are opinions, beliefs. Our show is edited for content, but at the end of the day, it's what we believe. And we believe strongly in that. And how is that any different than anybody else that's got a podcast out there or spreading their own word? Exactly. So interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, we can go all kinds we of could. time with that, but yeah. We'll save it for another time. Sounds good. All right. Till next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.